This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. This show is, in my view, upfront, up close, and life-saving. Everybody loves animals. Few, though, go far above and beyond like our guests on today's edition of In Conversation. I call them animal angels. We're celebrating these deeply caring and incredibly selfless human beings whose main mission is to save lives, the lives of thousands of precious paws, in dire straits and without a voice. Dr. Scott Bainbridge has a deep understanding of how animals think, behave, react, and feel. Yes, animals have feelings. His commitment to saving the lives of our pets in his private practice, Dundas West Animal Hospital in Toronto, is remarkable. But his compassion for those in need is without borders. Scott Bainbridge works tirelessly to help wildlife facing extreme danger, most recently rescuing and treating kangaroos and other creatures badly burned in Australia's devastating bushfires. We are in conversation with the award-winning and life-saving veterinarian, Scott Bainbridge. So good to have you with us, Scott. How are you? I'm, I'm great, Anne. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here today. Well, I want to ask first and foremost, what is it about animals that you love so much and that you understand so great? You know, it's, 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 it's interesting. As a kid, I just seemed to have such a connection towards, towards animals. We, we grew up in a very rural area of northern Alberta, and uh, a lot of the, the farm dogs, unfortunately, could kind of get dumped into our town where we lived and uh, my mom never would really let me have these dogs in the house so they just kind of uh, lived around the house and when I'd come out in the morning to kind of do my thing get ready for school the dogs would kind of follow me around and it just I don't know just seemed to have this real affiliation for for dogs and cats and wildlife as well I just really got a good vibe for them. It's one thing to love animals and to dream about how you might help them in your future it's another to actually pursue the career of veterinarian and yours was a long and very well educated path I must say you are an honors uh, bachelor of science animal behavior U of T uh, you took a pre-vet course at Colorado State U you graduated from the Ontario Veterinary College you made the dean's honor roll at OVC each and every year bravo Scott uh, thank you. But like I said, it was, it was not an easy route. I really, my timeline didn't go according to plan. Like I, I initially, you know, was 18 and went to my first couple of years at the University of Toronto and was trying to get my, you know, 90% average. And unfortunately that didn't pan out. So I ended up getting a, uh, a degree in animal behavior instead. And then I went and worked for a big corporation for a few years. And then they kind of wanted to pro- promote me into management. And I kind of thought, this isn't what I really wanted to do, you know, kind of thing. So I kind of took a second look at things and I was older at this point. So went back to university, upgraded my mark. So, I mean, I was, I was 28 years old before I got into vet school and didn't graduate till I was 32, which in, in hindsight, I was a little frustrated with, but I think in the end, it actually did me wonders because I think I was a little more, had a little bit better handle on life at that point when I did graduate. And when you established your first veterinary clinic, veterinary hospital, what was your vision at that point? Well, you know, I'd always been told that you go work for somebody else for, for a lot of years. You don't just walk out of school and open your own vet clinic, but I didn't listen to that advice. <laughs> so sure enough, we, uh, we took a map of the city of Toronto. We had bingo daubers, and we took our daubers, and we plotted where the, the vet clinics were in Toronto, and I found this 
big gap in the in the, the, the clean west area. So my partner and I at the time uh, opened our first hospital, and we we kept our part time jobs at other clinics as associates, thinking we'd work the new clinic on a part time basis. And I'd say within two weeks we had to give up our our jobs because the the clinic we'd opened just took off right off the bat. So it was a, it was, it was a pretty rewarding experience. And rewarding is your clinic now, Dundas West Animal Hospital. What makes it different? What makes it tick? Uh, it's the culture in there, I say. It's um, very, very uh, fussy who we hire. We, we, we have people on staff that are very like-minded. Obviously, everyone's got to be, you know, uh, skilled and, uh, and, uh, and love animals. But at the same time, I want people that are really service-driven. You know, no, no, no animal walks into the, that clinic on their own. They all, they all come in with clients. And so want to make sure that our clients and our patients are well looked after when they come in. So let's open up the roadmap, the, the world map, if you will, and let's start with your first endeavor, wherever it was in the world, rescuing or treating animals, wild animals most often. Where was the first stop? So the, the first stop was probably Australia. And my, my wife and I had uh, taken a trip to Australia with our son. This is back in 2010. And we... Uh, we, we fell in love with, with Sydney, Australia. So we decided to start uh, a business down there with, uh, with a partner where we would run a camp for kids that wanted to be veterinarians. And so in the first year, we probably put through about 30 kids in the camp. And then the, our last camp, we put through almost 200 kids in the camp. And what came through that was we started working with wildlife groups down there and eventually started getting these association with um, rehab centers, with uh, wildlife centers. And then most recently, we were down there during camp when the bushfires broke out. And uh, the country of Australia put out a call to all the vets that were in the country to come and help. So uh, another friend of mine from Canada was down there on holidays. Him and I went down into the, the bushfire areas together and uh, were helping bandage uh, mostly wallabies and kangaroos that had been burned in the fire. So that was probably our, our first foray into that. And probably a very challenging foray, but also rewarding, difficult at the same time. So what did you see? How were these animals affected by these devastating bushfires? So it was just, it was shocking. Well, first of all, I was a little bit worried. I mean, I've never worked on a kangaroo before in my life, right, kind of thing. So you're kind of like, well, am I trained to do this? And then I guess you just kind of said, hey, you know what? You just have to do what you know best. And, you know, it's, you know, it's just a, uh, it's a dog that hops is the way I kind of looked at it. And uh, and the, the anatomy was very similar. So we, we went in, but to see these animals that, that had obviously just been devastated by what what had happened and the injuries that they were they were suffering um it was so nice to see the community the people of australia come together and make make shift um uh, uh care centers in garages and in tool sheds and stuff like everyone bonded together to help out with it it was a it was an incredible experience what was it like treating kangaroos that had been burned. I know in some cases you had to do as a last resort, but as a humane resort, I suppose, you had to put some of them down. We did, but but fortunately, the, the, the nice thing was we came armed with pain control when we got down there. So that was the 
first order of business for all the injured animals to make sure that their pain control was was adequate. And then we would assess each one individually. And it was a lot of young animals we were dealing with. And yes, unfortunately, some of them just were not. It wasn't feasible that, that we could we could help them through. So we had to humanely euthanize those animals. Most of them, though, we did rehab. And it was uh, interesting to, to, to work with treating their burns because it wasn't something you would do necessarily in uh, downtown Toronto private practice. So uh, uh, it was it was a very unique and I, I was humbled by it to be quite honest with you. There's a, a lot of learning come out of that. Interesting. Uh, a kangaroo is a marsupial, so it means that they have a pouch and there often is a, a, a baby kangaroo, a joey, inside the pouch. What was your experience during the bushfires with that? So be, be, because we're mostly dealing with the joeys, so, that's, so the, the joeys survived the fires because they were in, in the pouches, so they actually were the ones who weren't as badly burned, so that tended to be who we were treating the most. And the way we would set it up in the... Uh, in the wildlife centers is we would have like a pillowcase that would hang because there, there was no mum anymore. So the pillowcase would hang and the joeys would hop into the pillowcase and that's how you go in and treat them. So I could go right into the pillowcase and actually do the injections. And uh, when we were doing our bandage changes and stuff, we had to actually bring them out. But but the, the animals, I don't know, I almost felt like they knew we were helping them. They were very easy to work with. Like I, don't, I didn't get scratched or bitten once, which was quite shocking considering how painful some of these animals were. I know you're a very sensitive man. You took care of my Jack Russell, Lucy, for years and years, mm-hmm. and you helped both of us uh, on the day that she died. You helped her, obviously, and you helped me, the client. How do you maintain your strength and your demeanor, you know, the doctor, the veterinarian demeanor, when I know that there are times when you're you're caving inside, you're collapsing, you're very upset by what you're seeing and doing? Yeah, it, it's tough, and I know it's what turns a lot of people off our profession is the the fact you have to do that. But there is a really special bond that you know when when, when I've been with you and your pet for fourteen years, and I've I've got to learn all about you and all about your pet and uh, the the bond that you guys have together. That when it comes time, like this to me is the most important time in my my career when it comes to this relationship. I want to make sure that I'm strong and I support my client and the patient and that it go as smoothly as possible. Like of all the things I do over the years I look after a pet, it is that final day that is by far the most important. Tell me what you're doing these days in terms of the global reach of Dr. Scott Bainbridge. What are you up to? <laughs> well, we uh, never keep a keep a man down. I, uh, my wife and I uh, bought a home on the coast of, on, in Ecuador a few years back, and out of that came the, the fact that the, the stray dog population in Ecuador is unbelievably bad right now so just before COVID happened we were able to set up with our local community down there a uh, uh, a no charge spay neuter clinic for for the local people I brought a bunch of my staff down from from Toronto here and we uh, turned it into kind of a working holiday but we did take three days where we uh, spayed and neutered I'm gonna say almost 300 dogs and cats in three days so that was very rewarding and had a great deal to do for the town as well Unfortunately, future trips were, were canceled because of COVID, but we do have a trip planned in uh, February of 2022 and a second one in March. And uh, I now have 16 staff members that are, are coming down on that trip with me. So uh, we're working with the local vets down there, trying to train them on how to do uh, quick spay neuters as well, just to kind of get everybody on board. So it's, uh, it's pretty rewarding stuff. What advice would you give to people who are thinking about making a career of, of helping animals? 
So to me, get as much experience as you possibly can. So volunteer, you know, get a dog walking business going. Just do do as much as you can so that you you make sure that uh, working with animals is actually where you want to be. You can volunteer at wildlife sanctuaries. Like there's so many routes. Um, you got to know your sciences. So if you're going to go into to, to animal medicine, you got you got to have your chemistries and your biologies and your masks. Um, so really buckle down at school and, and focus because it is a very very tough career to get into the um there are not a lot of vet schools and the entry requirements are extremely tough so you got to really really be committed but also have a backup plan as well because not every kid that wants to be a vet is going to be able to get into veterinary medicine so it is good to have a backup plan maybe you could be a, a veterinary nurse or you could work in a vet clinic as a manager there's so many other options thanks for being so realistic and so compassionate i call you an animal angel you're also the award-winning and life-saving veterinarian scott bainbridge thanks for being with us in conversation thanks so much Andrew. nice being here when we come back golden rescue this is in conversation with ann romer is there someone you want to learn more about drop us a line info at 1059theregion.com ann romer will be right back on 1059 the region Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 105.9 The Region. Next, Viva Tam, a canine crusader. Her whole world revolves around rescuing golden retrievers from absolutely deplorable living conditions. Golden Rescue has a global reach and a never-ending need. Thank you, Animal Angel Viva Tam, for joining us in conversation. Oh, thank you so much for bringing uh, awareness to rescue, Anne. You spent time in the corporate world, in the world of communications. You have landed in a place that I believe is perfect for you. You are one of the top dogs, if you will, at Golden Rescue. How did you end up with this incredible organization? Well, it all started when I was, uh, my husband and I were walking around the sportsman show, and that was almost 20 years ago, and we saw um, a booth for Golden Rescue, and we just naturally assumed that, that it meant that they were training Golden Retrievers to do rescue work. It never even dawned on us that Golden Retrievers would need rescuing. So we just stopped because there were some Goldens out front, and uh, they were the magnet, of course, and we went to say hello to the Goldens because we already had one from a breeder. And the next thing you know, we filled out an adoption application, and we and we adopted Jake number four two four. And this wasn't <laughs> your first foray into the world of of animal rescues and animal care. I believe that you were part of something called Operation Migration, dedicated to saving the whooping crane. What was that all about? Well, it, um, Bill Lisman is, uh, I think, a, a, a Canadian hero. Um, you may have heard of him. He flew with uh, Canadian geese with his ultralight um, and, uh, and developed um, a, a way for geese to imprint on his ultralight to fly. So the problem was that whipping cranes have lost their in, instinct for migration, so he developed this method with uh, testing with Canadian geese, and um, and then moved to sandhill cranes to do some you know more testing, and then eventually 
um, we moved to the whooping crane, and there was only, I believe, 186 of them left in the world, and now it's uh, it's a sustainable uh, um, bird now. You know, because I, of that program. And I think about whooping cranes, and you know, not everybody understands or, or might have the passion that you do about whooping cranes or about making sure that they don't become extinct. But everyone loves a dog, and everyone is familiar <laughs> with a golden retriever, or sometimes golden labs. I know that's part of the umbrella. What does Golden Rescue try to do? Well, we try to give uh, Goldens a second chance, and and in a lot of the cases with the international Goldens, we are not giving them a second chance. We are actually giving them their only chance. So whenever we rescue, whether domestic or international, we, we try to pair them with uh, um, a new family, and we take care of them health-wise and, and, uh, and try to bring them back to giving them the life of the goofy goofballs that they're meant to be. Why do they need rescuing from places around the world? What are the conditions in which they are living? Well, it depends on the country, but certainly the mo- the worst one is uh, Egypt. Um, right now, the Egyptians are poisoning dogs on the street, shooting them, or they're rounding them up for the meat trade. So... When you look at these goldens who come off the plane and see what happy-go-lucky, you know, boys and girls they are, you know, it just it just is absolutely unfathomable that we would be they would be picking them up and sending them to the meat trade or killing them, and that they just do not deserve that. And how do they end up in Egypt in the first place? Do they not have guardians? Do they not have owners? Well, they do, but I think what happened is, uh, and and a lot of this is hearsay, but uh, we've heard that in both Egypt and Turkey, the golden retriever is a fairly new addition uh, to the breeds in that country, and it was seen as a status symbol. And, uh, and of course, when you know economics failed, and and uh, then the first thing to go were the family pets, and it's not just goldens, of course, it's other um, other dogs as well. But uh, you know, our focus, of course, is on golden retrievers. So, yeah, it, it's unfortunate. I mean, but it happens here in Canada as well. So, you know, one of the first things to go are are the pets. What about other countries around the world where Goldens are in trouble? Well, there's uh, there's countries everywhere. China, I mean, um, China. There's countries in the in South America. Certainly, you know, Caribbean islands. You know, they all have strays. One of our big uh, one of our biggest challenges right now is that in the U.S., the CDC has banned. 104 countries from sending their rescues to the U.S. And that is putting a huge strain on the rest of the world because um, the U.S. has always been, you know, you know, great advocates for rescue, and now it's just not happening. So I'm probably getting daily calls from rescue groups around the world asking if we can take more golden. And is this because of COVID that the CDC has, has stepped in and said no, no? Well, I don't know how politically incorrect I can get here, but I think this is a charge that has pretty much been led by the the American Kennel Club. 
Right. Okay. So we've got a big problem. And in your case, we're looking at rescuing Goldens from these just incredibly horrible conditions. I just can't even imagine how awful it must be for these poor, innocent souls. Walk us through the steps. So there is a dog that needs to be rescued, let's say off the streets of Egypt. What happens? How do you go from point A to point Z, everything in between? What happens? Well, I'll give you an example of uh, one of the Goldens, Mocha. Mocha um, came on the radar of one of our rescue angels there because someone uh, took a YouTube film of two guys on a motorcycle dragging Mocha behind them. She was about 10 months old, and, and it was 50-degree heat, and she's dodging cars. And I guess these guys thought it was fun to have Mocha running behind, you know, tied to their motorcycle. So our rescue angels over in Cairo contacted the guys and bought Mocha from her, um, or Mocha from them, and brought them to their uh, to their shelter. They contacted us and asked if we would take Mocha. We actually, we absolutely said we would. They give us fairly detailed information about um, about their character, their age, obviously the gender. Um, we get blood work done. We make sure they're vaccinated for a whole bunch of things, um, and then we arrange a flight. And we, and prior to the flight, we try to find the the most appropriate home for them here in Canada. And we look at we are a matching service. So we really look at what the golden needs and what uh, the person's needs are. Um, for example, if you have cats and, and this golden has a high prey drive, then we wouldn't give you cats, it, or, you know, or we wouldn't give you a golden who has a high prey drive. If uh, the golden has, you know, poor recall, then we're going to, de- you know, demand a fenced yard. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, what we call checks and balances. You're saving lives. So, Vive, in your most heartfelt way, can you describe to me what you see and what you feel on landing day? The Mercy flight lands at Pearson Airport. Dozens of and dozens of Goldens are in their crates. They've traveled from places like Egypt. The families are there waiting for them. Describe what you see and what you feel. You know what? There's not a dry eye. I mean, I know for me, um, we've we're on flight 180, so um, I've been to the vast majority of the big flights, and we've actually had flights arrive in JFK and Chicago as well, and we've driven them to Canada, just depending on where where and when we can get flights. But it is just it it's incredible. The feeling is incredible, and it just never gets old. When you see the crates open up, and sometimes the goldens are in the crates cowering, um, and you can see them shaking, and they come out of their crates, and within seconds, they can tell that they're friendly voices and friendly faces on the other side of the crates, and their tails start to wag, and and they jump up, and they're happy, 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 and... Tears are pouring down everyone's faces. Actually, I'm getting a bit choked up now just thinking about it. And, you know, we even have, you know, cargo guys who are standing there with tears pouring down their faces. It's, it really is. It's an absolute joy because, you know, you've, you've saved their lives. What about the forever families who are there waiting with open arms? 
Well, they, uh, they, they're all standing around anxiously waiting for us to call their golden's name because we open the crates up one at a time and bring them out. And, and, uh, um, and they're standing there usually with tears pouring down their faces. They've got their collars and leashes ready for them to go. And, uh, and it's, it's just a, a joyful, joyful experience. Viva, why do you do this? There are so many reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, when I look at, uh, I, we typically have four rescues at home. When I look into their big brown eyes and I just see all the love they have to give, they're so, so trusting, they have forgiven everything, they live in the moment, they are truly man's best friend. And they are gentle goofballs that make us laugh every day and they need they need us they just you know they they need good people in the world to help them i must say you have made such a difference and golden rescue it's my understanding that so far Golden Rescue has rescued over 3,700 Goldens throughout Canada, Egypt, Turkey, Mexico, and other other countries around the world. It's just, it really is quite remarkable if you think about that number. It is a remarkable number. And, you know, we, we, have, the, we have the capacity to do twice that in, in, in a nanosecond if we, you know, for us, it's all about... Uh, it's all about funding. You know, it's expensive to get goldens here. Um, and, uh, but the desire is there. The know-how is there. We have uh, enough uh, adopters. Uh, I'm hoping to win the lottery so that we can <laughs> take a plane over there and bring 2,000 back at a time. But until, <laughs> until then, you, in mid-September, launched something called Lift Off for Love. Can you quickly tell us what that is? We are hoping to rescue 200 Goldens between now and, and Christmas. It's a lofty goal, but uh, they need our help. Um, the Goldens in Istanbul and Cairo need our help. Our domestic Goldens, we will always take care of. That's always our number one priority, but Lift Off for Love is, is in addition to our domestic Goldens. And like I say, it's a lofty goal, but with the, with the CDC closing the U.S. borders, we need to step up even more and we need to step up now and people who want to help can go to your website and look for lift off for love i've got to tell you you are a remarkable human being as is everyone involved at golden rescue and in golden rescue and other rescue organizations across this country thank you for leading the charge viva tam thank you so much Anne. follow in conversation with ann romer on twitter at 1059 the region this is 1059 the region